0: of Hollywood's most fabulous cinema palace, the one that shows all the good-ass movies, the Cine Family, right here on Fairfax Avenue. In the gracious tennis shoe record district of Los Angeles, where Drake will be dropping a jam, and you'll be kiping a burger, and then later on going over to Cantor's and getting one of their antique sandwiches from their <laughs> festive collection of historic sandwiches that they serve over at Cantor's, and then possibly having a drink in the kibbutz room and letting your life fill out to its full measure here. Then going over to the newsstand on the corner. Oh, it's on here at Fairfax Avenue, ladies and gentlemen. You can also buy all the kosher goods and all the uh, 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 Jewish bric-a-brac you've ever, all, all the tchotchkes you've ever dreamed of are, are available here for your here, perusal here. Tonight, we're going to be showing Joseph Sargent's 1974 thriller, an overlooked gem of the 70s genre of thriller, uh, The Taking of Pelham One Two Three, 2 3 and uh, it's going to be... a uh, A fine movie, you may want to dig it up right now if you're out there listening in Proopcast land. uh, This is an awesome time to get some drinks together and uh, perhaps roll one and uh, find an illegal version of this somewhere on the internet uh, for your perusal. I'm almost certain there is one. Is it on Netflix? I know the new one's on Netflix. And let's just talk about the new one and get that over with. (laughs) I was talking to someone here in Los Angeles today and as you know, Los Angeles aside from being the epicenter of show business and being the fulcrum upon which the uh, giant lever uh, of all entertainment is balanced um, is also thank you a That is a <laughs> geometry joke for the one Archimedes fan in the room uh, uh, as well as that you realize of course that Los Angeles is also simultaneously or simultaneously if you wish to be pretentious and I do um <laughs> Uh, the most filmy illiterate town that ever fucking walked the face of the earth. You can can go to Dayton, Ohio, and there's a club there that's showing Harold and Maude every Thursday night and crying over it, okay? You come to L.A., and a person said to me today, I go, I'm showing the original taking of Pelham 123, and she went, I didn't know there was an original. (laughs) Meaning that I guess the Tony Scott one from several years ago, and God rest his soul, this one's for Tony, spilling some dead for some dead homies. Uh, some body. Uh, I saw the uh, remake uh, I was on a plane I believe uh, No I didn't walk Although I wanted to um, If you've seen the remake There's a couple of things that are different One um, the thrill and the pace are gone And uh, a horrible infestation uh, Destroyed most of the plot uh, I think cicadas were in the room With the script And they chewed the script to death So but the best part of the new remake uh, is two things. One, Luis Guzmán is in it, and, and he, and Luis Guzmán, by the way, should be in everything. And. <laughs> Robbo, why, why is there a weird sense around noise going on like we're showing earthquake here tonight and Ava Gardner's about to, okay, there we go, that's over uh, Luis Guzman should be in everything and if I haven't told him and I don't know him and if anyone in this room knows Louis Guzman or his representation I have a brilliant idea for him for an HBO fucking detective series where he lives in East LA and he wears a wife beater and a fucking fedora, follow me on this <laughs> And everybody knows him. Like, there's no case he follows where, right. He goes on a case and it's like, hey, it's me, Tony, Tony, oh, fuck. And, you know, right, right? It's, it's super, Robo, seriously. Uh, uh, it's super barrio. And I always thought Luis Guzman would be great in that. Because let's be honest, he's a movie helper. And movies like Out of Sight and shit like that, uh, you're like, oh, thank God Luis Guzman's on screen right now. <laughs> Uh, so he's in the remake And John uh, Travolta in, in the remake of The Taking of Pelham 123 And this will be the end of it uh, Is uh, I, I think playing a leather bear From an awesome bar in San Francisco There's a bar in San Francisco Down south of the market called The Eagle And uh, when you drive by The Eagle At five in the morning There are many motorcycles parked out in front And every man has the facial hair Of the leather guy from The Village People they all have a mutton chop sideburny thing in the leather hat and stuff, and that's what John Travolta's wearing through the whole of the remake of Taking a One, Two, Three. Well, having said that, let's get to this one. I don't know that it's the greatest thriller of the '70s, but let me give you an idea about the '70s movie-going experience. A lot of you are quite young, or probably born in the '80s and stuff like that. I went to movies all through the '70s because I was 10 to 20 during that decade. Don't start guessing how old I am—over a hundred—and. Uh, uh, they showed lots of great films then. Uh, uh, Buster Keaton's The General, uh, Citizen Kane, uh, The Melee's Brothers, A Trip to the Moon. Uh, I'm joking, of course. I was taking you back, hoping for a laugh on that one, but evidently everyone presumed that I was so old that I remembered the dawn of fucking film. We would sit in a room, and a man would ban a lantern, and then music would play from a violinist in the corner. This is the moon. la da 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 I, 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 uh, I may have said this before on the show, and if I have, I know it's sad, but I'm going to say it again. I was the critic, uh, the film critic for my high school newspaper for a while, briefly, and yes, I reviewed the reincarnation of Peter Proud with Michael Sarazin. I also, yeah, fine motion picture. I also, Jennifer O'Neill's in it, and I think that's all I have to say about that. For those of you who remember Jennifer O'Neill from the 70s, she was a model who became an actress who became a model while she was acting. And... (laughs) She's in several great uh, movies from that period. She's in Summer 42, most notably, where she is the uh, older lady, uh, which is hilarious, considering she's 20 in the movie or whatever. Uh, uh, she's also in a John Wayne movie, um, Rio, Rio Lobos, I think. Golly, it's toward the end. Rio Lobos. And Jackie Elam says, Jackie Elam is the Western actor, and he's in um, uh, Fritz Lang's Big Heat. He's a gangster actor and then later a western actor. And the reason why you would know Jackie Lim is one eye goes that way and one eye goes that way. And he's in the beginning of How the West Was Won, right? If you've ever Not How the West Was Won. Um, help me, Charles Bronson. Once upon, Once upon a Time in the West. Thank you. The opening shots are, are Jackie Elam and, and his eyes are all over the fucking yard, right? <laughs> and in the John Wayne movie, Jennifer O'Neill comes running up the hill and he goes, I was going to shoot you, but you've got the prettiest legs I've ever seen. <laughs> I remember that line from when I was like 11 years old. Uh, We would go to the movies. They cost 50 cents then. And my mom would give me like a dollar uh, or a dollar... uh, Not kidding, a dollar to go to the fucking movies because you call your mother after from the payphone in the lobby. And uh, candy was like 25 cents or whatever. A Coke was a quarter or whatnot. And they would get um, uh, Red Hots. And Red Hots... uh, I don't know if they still serve Red Hots. Do they have them here? This is the perfect theater, by the way, to recreate the 70s movie experience. For one thing, the projection... uh, The projectors don't work. And... (laughs) When the movie starts, there's a big five, four, three, two, one, and then the the film burns up in front of you, and a giant hair enters the lens and shit. This happened all the time, and they show fucking short subjects and, and previews here, which they always showed in the old movie, uh, uh in, the, in the old days, in the 70s they still showed uh, short subjects and and, and the candy hair. Of course, there's Maltesers. Now there's Kit Kats. We had nothing so fancy as a Kit Kat in those days. Nestle's Crunch was like gourmand, fucking top of the line, uh, and those were 15 cents. They were brutal on your budget of a dollar. <laughs> I remember when You Only Live Twice came out they raised the price or no Dr. Doolittle when Dr. Doolittle came out with Rex Harrison they raised the price to 75 cents at the Carlos at the Laurel Theater in San Carlos where I grew up and I was like fuck because now I had a quarter instead of 50 cents to spend for the rest of the day and I had to call my mother but of course you could always just beg and like "Go, can we use your phone yes that's right we would with our scruffy noses and our little sideways hats and our news sacks Read all about it in the evening, Herald. Hey, mister, can I use your phone? i got to call my ma. She'd come down in a... uh, We didn't really have a station wagon, but it's a better story if we did. We had a station wagon. (laughs) And it had wood on the sides uh, to keep that rustic theme going, as if your team of horses had just up and run away. (laughs) Looks like we'll have to use this consarned engine in this newfangled vehicle. Uh... But uh, I happen to have a soft spot for all the 70s movies because I think, it's, I think when you're little, those are the movies that you first see and that's why you like them so much. It's not that they're better than any other movies, except that they are. And um, in my opinion, the movies from my uh, childhood are better than the movies from your childhood. If you grew up in the 90s and shit, um, really... And if you grew up now If you're a child And you like Were from 10 to 20 In the 2000s and shit Are you really gonna Come at me with Green Lantern and shit And fucking Silver Linings Playbook And say those are classics That stand the test of time Till the fucking No you're not No you're fucking not You're gonna be embarrassed That you watched Hunger Games And cried with your friends Is what's gonna happen (laughs) Okay, so let me just talk about my decade for a minute, and then we'll get back to your shitty, fucking paltry, underwritten, piece of shit, fucking horrible 7,000 remix of Philip K. Dick decade that we're talking about here. This is the decade movies died. And when I say movies, I mean Hollywood movies. And it's really no pity because there's plenty of other kind of good movies and independent movies and foreign films. Movies will never die. It's just that Hollywood does everything it can to put a gigantic male member inside Hollywood's fucking supine opening. Uh, <laughs> Uh, to, to take whatever little goodness was left and uh, Nominating 16 to 20 movies each year for the Academy Award I think is the first sign that desperation has completely set in uh, it, it used to be five movies And the five movies would be like Apocalypse Now, Apocalypse Now, Apocalypse Now The Godfather and Serpico And that's what the 70s were like Now there's ten movies and you're like, really? When The Croods is nominated next year, we'll have this discussion again <laughs> Okay, alright, that's all I'm saying you can look up your nose at me all you like because I'll be looking down mine at yours. Uh, <coughs> we, uh, uh, there, there were so many great caper films and action films in the 70s, uh, starting with, of course, and not uh, uh, limited to, uh, The French Connection, The Seven Ups. Uh, for caper films, The Anderson Tapes, which I would show here, but I don't think I could get anyone to come. The movie my wife wanted to show was Charlie Verick, which is part of the great trilogy of Walter Matthau. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, terse fucking awesome uh, uh, movies of the 70s. Walter Matthau is of course in charade, uh, where he plays uh, the ratty FBI agent. But he in the 70s he's in this picture, The Taking of Pelham one, two, three, which is uh, that New York that I speak of all the time, the one that had the um uh, 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 Beretta intro music playing at all times in every <gasps> every movie and then and someone's going to be wearing a tan jacket. Um, Let he who is without sin cast a stone at the first plaid pair of bell-bottoms in this fucking movie That's all I have to say When you see one more haircut where there's too much male hair on one side and hardly any on the other You will know what the 70s were all about Uh, Tan was a very big color, as was plaid, as were giant cuffs Both on your pants, your collar, and uh, on your shirt Uh the, uh, the Anderson tapes I would show, that's a Sean Connery movie that they knock over a, uh, uh, a high-class apartment building in New York City. And Martin Balsam's in that one. And Martin Balsam's in this movie as well. Uh, Hector Alizondo is in this movie. And uh, Hector Elizondo, uh, you've seen in a thousand movies. Of course, notably, those of you who will remember, will remember him in Pretty Woman uh, as the uh, manager of the hotel who shows kindness to Julia Roberts. He's only been in about 450,000 things, including the TV version of Casablanca. Where he, where he played Lieutenant Renault. Yes, there was a TV series of Casablanca in the late 70s. Oh, no, we had it all, like Bogey and McCall. Uh, Hector Alazondo was in a TV version uh, and also on the, uh, Broadway called, excuse me, of a play uh, by Bruce J. Friedman called Steam Bath where he played a Puerto Rican steam bath attendant who when you die, you go to heaven and heaven is a steam bath and God is a Puerto Rican steam bath attendant. And this will give you an idea of the 70s jokes in the movie uh, and in in the play. He says, uh, how do I know you're God? And a phone drops down and (laughs) Hector Elizondo goes, cancel all in the family. (laughs) That's how you knew he was God. He had the power to cancel all in the family which was the most popular show in the entire universe at the time. He was nominate, He got a Tony uh, for *Steambath*. He's also a fine guitarist, which I love. Now, he's in a lot of Gary Marshall movies, including... Uh, uh, exactly. <laughs> We're not going to go into Gary Marshall's oeuvre here tonight, although the more said about Exit to Eden, the better. <laughs> because it might be one of the great movies that you'll ever... Yeah, it's right up there. Ro- when you see Rosie O'Donnell in S&M gear... I don't think your life's ever going to be the same again. Just, I, all I have to say is try eating breakfast. <laughs> just try. Uh, and it's not just her, it's everyone. Uh, considered by director producer Gary Marshall to be his good luck charm, Hector Elizondo appears in so many Gary Marshall films. His credit in the beginning of Exit to Eden, 1994, was, as usual, Hector Elizondo. <laughs> that's fucking hilarious uh, what I wanted to talk about a little bit was uh, Robert Shaw, because Robert Shaw uh, who, who's uh, the, the, the bad guy in this movie, the chief bad guy um, had a magnificent career not only was he a stage actor in England and Australia, um, he was an author and wrote four novels, including The Man in the Glass Booth which later became a movie with Maximilian Schell that he was nominated for best actor for yes, let me open up the globe now and take you on a trip around the world <laughs> Let's visit Poland first <laughs> Ah, there you are My little Polish darlings That's where the alcohol is kept Right here in the globe on stage mm. And uh, Robert Shaw drank a lot Here's Robert Shaw's drink, uh, quote about drinking I was going to say drink about quoting <laughs> I drink too much Will you tell me one great actor who doesn't drink uh, Evidently the drinking that went on Uh, During all of his movies Was fantastic Um, He wrote uh, The Man in the Glass Booth And The Man in the Glass Booth was controversial When it came out at the time uh, Because uh, you never know whether he's posing As a Nazi Or posing as a Jew who's pretending to be a Nazi Or posing as a blah 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 You understand So they kidnap him, it's like Eichmann And make him uh, testify in a glass booth At war crimes trials And uh, Robert Shaw wrote that uh, just know that while you're watching the movie That he was a noted author And that he cared a lot about writing as well He also became an international film star Because in the 70s he did uh, Jaws, right after this movie The taking of Pelham one, two, three Robin and Marion, uh, with Richard Lester Where he plays, uh, of course, the sheriff of Nottingham uh, Robert Shaw only played blustery asshole types Basically, in American movies And awesomely, in The Sting uh, He's Doyle Lonergan And uh, Lonergan, Lonergan, Lonergan Yeah, Lonergan I'm sorry, Mr. Linneman. It's Lonergan. Uh, he was quite a good actor. Uh, he's best remembered as being an accomplished writer and supporting actor. His literary contributions include The Man in the Glass Booth. Uh, from Russia with Love* is where I first saw him when I was a child. And I was, uh, my friend Jeff Belton and me would go down to the Laurel Theater, or the Carlos Theater in St. Carlos, and see all the James Bonds films. And uh, now, mind you, that one's pretty early. I was quite young. I saw it after on its re-release. Uh, Robert Shaw plays the Russian guy in it, and if you remember, he's Gary Boosie in The First Lethal Weapon. He's got the dyed blonde hair, and people punch him in the stomach a lot, and he doesn't react. Uh, So he started out playing tough guys and hard guys, uh, and then grew to play a gallery of of wild, outrageous characters. Um, He was born, let's see, in Lancashire, blah, 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 blah. This is the part I liked. He was directed by Gielgud, who said to him, I do admire you and think you've got a lot of ability, and I'd like to help you, but you make me so nervous. You can imagine a young Robert Shaw. When you watch him in the movies, he feels like he's a coiled spring at all times about to fucking... His role as Quint in Jaws... Let's let's be very honest about Jaws. Jaws is a good movie. It's okay. And when you watch it again, you're scared. He's doing a great deal of the heavy lifting in that fucking movie. Once they get on the boat, the movie takes off. When it's him and the fucking shark, and all of a sudden it's Moby Dick with a rubber shark... And he's fucking Ahab. That's when the movie gets good. Uh, all the parts on dry land and shit, yeah, they're good. They're cute. They're fun. When Robert Shaw's like, <laughs> and does the monologue about the Indianapolis, which evidently he partially improvised. Uh, I'm not certain of that, but that's what I've been reading today. Uh, he improvised a lot on the picture, and he was quite a good writer, as, as stated. Um, when he was making The Taking of Pelham One Two Three. He said to uh, uh, Hector Elizondo, he said, I've never – he goes, "Um, they want me to make this fish movie. (laughs) And Hector Elizondo goes, why don't you want to do it? And he says, I've never heard of the fucking director. (laughs) (laughs) And I hate the title. It's called Jaws. Uh, uh, Steven Spielberg wasn't famous yet then. And it only made, what, Sugarland Express and Duel, maybe? And, and that awesome Night Gallery episode with Joan Crawford. Uh, let's not forget that one. Um, it made $100 million worldwide, and it was the first movie, Jaws, to gross $100 million. He didn't make any money, Robert Shaw, because he didn't have a piece of it, and he'd been working all over the world, and taxes fucked him. Then he made The Deep later on, which is another Peter Benchley movie, uh, uh, several years later. And The Deep is not a great movie, Um, He kept saying to Nick Nolte while they're making the movie, because it wasn't going well to shoot. They shot in, where did they shoot? Bermuda. Uh, It's a treasure movie. It's a treasure movie, Nick. Don't worry about it. Imagine being with Nick Nolte and Robert Shaw in Bermuda during the shooting, yes, of The Deep. You can imagine all you like about the drinking and the coking. What I'm imagining is Jacqueline Bissett getting up every morning and like a fawn coming out on her patio – Shaking her mane of brunette hair back and then putting on a groovy bikini and getting ready to shoot. If you've ever seen the movie The Deep, and I can only gather by the quietude of this fucking crowd (laughs) that you've never seen the movie The Deep and you have good reason not to see it, uh, understand that Jacqueline Bissett wears a white t-shirt underwater in the movie. I don't know if I've made myself clear. (laughs) I saw Jacqueline Bissett At the Whole Foods In Beverly Hills Two years ago And she looked Fucking awesome Her hair was wild As shit Like she had just I don't know Done a a mad Bucko-Bronking Rodeo ride You know what I mean Like All I could presume Was that something Groovy had just happened Because her hair Was flowing Freely And I had a Fucking heart attack That's all I have to say About This is what I mean About the 70s You guys But we have Reese Witherspoon now Tremendous (laughs) that must really hot you up in the dead of night what if I told you Reese Witherspoon was in a white t-shirt in an Undersea Treasure movie yeah that was someone went eh and it's nothing against Reese Witherspoon it's just that she shouldn't be in an Undersea Treasure movie with a white t-shirt on Jacqueline Bissett should have would have fucking did okay no Oscars were handed out for that More's the fucking pity More is the fucking pity This director Joseph Sargent Made a thousand television movies And Jaws the Revenge Is his other Yes So there's a lot of Jaws Going on in this movie One way and another But when you watch it You'll find none Because basically It's in a subway train In New York Um, So Robert Shaw uh, Died too early And was a a tremendous actor Um, What was I going to say here Uh, There's an actor Named Ian Shaw Do we know him? All right, never mind Many of Captain Quint's ramblings in Jaws were actually Shaw's improvisations. He's considered one of many authors of the famous Indianapolis scene. In the town of West Haughton, in England, there's a pub called the Robert Shaw. I know, someone went, mm, exactly. That was the proper reaction. One day we'll all have a drink at the Robert Shaw. One day we'll all have many drinks, and then we'll take the can and we'll crush it like that.
1: Uh,
0: his other great quote was, what I tried to achieve in acting flamboyance." Would be self-indulgence if I tried it as a writer? Yes, I should think so. Uh, considering the movie scene we all remember you for is when you're running your fingers down a chalkboard in jaws and then go, "I want to find a shark, a shark you Oh, chey. Chiefy. May I ask what country he's from in that movie? He's from Inglire, Scotland, land, land. He's from Nipton on the ween. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Walter Mathau, what can I tell you? Um, the film's closing credits have a... Dis- yeah, what, what, what is there not to say about Walter Matthau? Not only did he make Charlie Varick and The Laughing Policeman, which are his three great terse movies of the 70s, and Taking a Pill in 123, he then went on to make The Bad News Bears, which is, yeah, uh, amazingly good. And uh, I think uh, on this anniversary of Jackie Robinson, this is the first day Jackie Robinson played in the big leagues in 1947, there's no greater baseball movie than you can mention than The Bad News Bears. <laughs> Because it had an alcoholic coach and lesbianic children. And I don't think you can ask any more from any baseball movie. Walter Matthau had not been on the New York subway in many years at the time this movie was made, even though he was born and raised in New York. Ever since the release of the film, no number six train has ever been scheduled to leave Pelham Bay Park Station at 1323 or 0123. They really hesitate to have a Pelham 123 because they know John Travolta has had his head shaved (laughs) and is waiting with a leather jacket on with Louise Guzman. (laughs) Uh, Another 70s riff in this movie. In the subway car, there's a poster of Iron Eyes Cody, who played the crying Indian, in the public service announcements from the 70s. Thank you. In In the 70s, on telly, they would show uh, uh, garbage everywhere in a park and shit, and like refuse falling on the ground. There was, a, for some reason, the '70s were really about one, the ecology, and two, litter. <laughs> litter was really important. We were going to keep America beautiful, and that was by picking up litter and putting it in a trash, in, in a waste basket. Sometimes in grade school, when I was in grade school, a waste paper basket, and uh, we actually had a waste paper basket monitor. When I was a small child It was not an elected position It was really more ceremonial <laughs> They had to wear a, a little quad de guerre And that my teacher Would kiss them On either cheek And <laughs> See what you missed We had phones and shit Really We had overhead projectors That the teacher Would spit on <laughs> Spit on the screen And then wipe it In front of you And you'd be like That's so gross That's so gross That you spit on that To wipe it off uh, yeah uh, The Beastie Boys Let's get right to the heart of the matter <laughs> On the album Ill Communication And I don't think anyone could ever, ever forget it The second verse is the King Ad-Rock And he says It's like the taking of the Pelham 1, 2, three, And if you want the duty rhyme Then come see me I got the savoir faire, right? Uh, the fact that the Beastie Boys are younger than me And all of their references are older than I am Makes me love them more than any group that ever lived it's like a pinch on the neck from Mister Spock. They say in one of their. Uh, of course, they would reference the taking of Pelham One Two Three because the next line, I believe, two verses later, he says, uh, I, I, I'm, "I'm what is it? I direct like, action like my man John Woo, and I got mad hits like I was Rod Carew." Uh, FYI, Rod Carew hit three eighty eight in nineteen seventy seven. I know it's not a big. Cinematic point. <laughs> I've made myself snork. This is an article Roger Ebert wrote uh, upon Walter Matthau's demise. I thought I'd quote you a couple of things. Yes, Roger Ebert was lovely in the last podcast that hasn't come out yet. I discuss him at length in Chicago. Um, Matthau was a favorite actor of two giants of American comedy, director Billy Wilder and playwright Neil Simon. He made three films with Wilder and starred in the screen versions of five Neil Simon comedies. He recalled meeting Neil Simon for the first time at a New York party. The conversation consisted of Simon saying, you ought to be in my next play. And Matthau replied, who are you? (laughs) Later, when we were doing The Odd Couple, he said to Neil Simon, I don't want to play uh, Oscar. I want to play Felix because Felix is... Oscar's too easy. He gets all the laughs. Felix, the hard part, he, he, that's the part I want to play. And Neil Simon said to him, Walter, do me a favor. Act on your own time. <laughs> Which is like a Neil Simon line. Uh, uh, he Apparently, and this is the part I thought would blow your mind here. Uh, Mathau was an inveterate gambler. According to this, he lost, according to him, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 million dollars gambling. And you think, how did you make 50 million dollars? <laughs> uh, 500 dollars a game top, sometimes a1,000. No hard attack bets. Do you follow basketball pretty closely? Mathau, pretty closely. How many games did Indiana lose during the regular season? Nine? What scores do you want to know? <laughs> Fantastic. He lied every time anyone asked him about his upbringing. Uh, Evidently, any time, yes, anyone asked him what his name was or what he really was. No one even knows what Walter Matthau's real name was. He says it was, according to this one, it's Walter Matuchanakayaski. But I've read lately that that's not true, that it was actually Matthau with a T-H-O-W, and that he just made it up every fucking time. (laughs) And for that, I love him. Uh, hello Dolly A Knee Leaf Earthquake Holy kittens The Laughing Policeman Taking a 123 The Bad News Bears House Calls With Glenda Jackson Glenda Jackson Was enormously popular As a romantic comedy lead After doing a movie called A Touch of Class in the mid-'70s and then made House Calls* with Walter Matthau ever, she is currently sitting as a member of Parliament in England and has been for 20 years, uh, Hampstead, my old neighbourhood in London, NW3 is her bailiwick, and when Margaret Thatcher died, if anyone watched, uh, uh, Glenda Jackson got up and gave a very fervent and impassioned speech about what a fascist Margaret Thatcher had been. (laughs) So Glenda Jackson was not only an Oscar-winning actress twice in uh, the American Pictures and a superb actor all around. uh, uh, You should see her, uh, Queen Elizabeth, if you ever get a chance. uh, um, uh, uh, The tall actress. Vanessa Redgrave plays, uh, you you love how my mind works, the tall actress. (laughs) You know, the one with the red hair. Vanessa Redgrave plays Mary Quinn of Scots and her Elizabeth one, and she has her aced. And uh, Glenda Jackson's one is really good. Also, Hedda Gabler, uh, uh, Georgie, um, uh, The Devils. I can think of about a thousand Glenda Jackson movies you should see, The Turtle Diaries. Uh, In my opinion... Faye Dunaway and Glenda Jackson are the two greatest actresses of the 70s. There's a lot of great actresses, uh, but they really kick it around the yard. Is Glenda Jackson in this movie tonight? No, she's not. And it's about time you queue it up because we're about to spin this fucker. But before we do, let me just tell you a couple places we're going to play here. Uh, We're at the Bar Lubitsch on Wednesday. That's not for the people who are listening because this will come out far after that. But for you here tonight, the living. (laughs) We won't be showing a movie, but it'll just be me talking for two hours. Can you imagine? You mean we don't even get Martin Balsam and Hector Elizondo to break up the fucking monotony of your talking? No. And you don't even get 20-minute breaks where we show the movie and then I get on the mic again and talk in between. Uh, we'll be at Good Nights in Raleigh, North Carolina on the 9th of May. Uh, on the 21st of May at the D.C. Improv in Washington, D.C. On the 25th of May at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Uh, and no sleep till. Uh, uh, we'll be showing Dog Day Afternoon here on May 28th. Sidney Lumet's amazing I'm on a '70s Jag. My wife picked all these movies. Uh, Dog Day. It, I don't know if you call it a caper film or a psychosexual thriller or what the fuck you'd call Dog Day, but Sidney, Sidney Lumet is one of the uh, maybe greatest, in, in my opinion. Uh, I don't know if he's undersung as a director, but every one of his movies has social content. The thing about this movie, taking a pelman one two three, this is a straight up caper film. Dog Day is about a lot of things, including sexual politics and LGBT. What do we call them now? Uh, L- LGBT rights And you know I mean it, it is a deep Fucking film And amazingly entertaining And it's Al Pacino When Al Pacino Was Al Pacino Before the wigs uh, Not that he's not good now I watched this Phil Spectre movie A couple of weeks ago Because I had to I put black music ah, It was fucking good It was good It was good It was good Helen Mirren was struggling She was She was miscast It was supposed to be Bent Miller And it should have been Helen Mirren, I had no idea what was in the fucking movie, but uh, uh, why she was in it. But Al Pacino was groovy in it. Uh, Dog Day, we're going to show on the 28th. The 18th and 23rd will be at the Soho uh, Theater in London, should you come to London. On the 27th of June, we'll be at uh, the Dines Theater in Amsterdam for what I think will be a seven-and-a-half-hour podcast. <laughs> Thank you, the two people who got that. Why will it be so long, Greg? Because I'll be so high that I won't shut up. <laughs> If you think I can go on and on about Robert Shaw now In a non-humorous way Wait till I get to Amsterdam Then every detail of every movie That I ever saw will be related Did I mention there was wood on the sides Of the station wagon It was a Vista cruiser It also had a window up on the top So you could watch the telephone wires go by That was for safety On the 29th of June We'll be in Norway at Oslo In a theater that I cannot pronounce the name of and it'll be a lot of money. It'll be 20 kronen. <laughs> uh, the 31st of July to the 15th of uh, uh, August we will be at Edinburgh, at the Edinburgh Festival with podcasts on the 3rd, the 9th, and the 15th. If you wish to write me personally, poisonally, it's smartest at a uh, oh, no, that's to ask a question on the show. We're not doing them tonight, but we do sometimes. If you want to write me poisonally, it's fan mail for Greg at gmail.com. And I do read all my emails. This, we were trying to figure out how many movies we showed in the Greg Proofs Film Club. And I hope that you like the ones that we showed. I felt quite awful because we showed with Nail and I last year. And then we uh, actually put it out a couple of weeks ago. And Richard Griffiths passed away right after I put it out. So I'm terrified to show this movie tonight. <laughs> Because Hector Elizondo Is the last member Of this gang That's still alive <laughs> So I'm hoping That he'll carry on For many more years uh, So far we've showed Buckaroo Bonsai With Neil and I uh, Annie Hall uh, Gilda The Big Sleep Point Break Return of the Living Dead, we showed for Halloween, Scrooge for Christmas, and now this one. So if you're getting ready, cue it up right now. Now's the time to light one up. Everyone here in the audience is going to get ready for the previews because we're going to show Joseph Sargent's 1974 classic starring the awesome Robert Shaw and the inimitable Walter Matthau, one of the terse great 70 thrillers, The Taking of Pelham 123. Yes, thank you so much It is that good uh, And next month, Dog Day Afternoon Really, what else can you say We'll just talk for a couple of minutes And then we'll blow um, The ending of the movie, tight, right Because the movie starts with Martin Balsam And, uh, and he, he leads you in with the sneezing right away uh, it, 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 What is it, in the first scene Where he, uh, he says, well, uh, what did you get this for And um, and Martin Balsam starts to tell the conductor, or uh, the, the uh, what do you call it, the grip man, the, the motorman, motor man. Mr. Uh, Doyle. And uh, Mr. Blue goes, Why don't you tell him all about yourself, Mr. Yeah. Mr. Green? Uh, that's what makes it so awesome. That and freeze frame on Walter Matho going, Geheim, Geheim, <laughs> Flavor, Schleim, <laughs> and Geheim. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I, I just really feel like there's a, a certain field of uh, uh, 70s terse uh, action films that, that no other decade really recalls. And uh, that they, uh, the, the, there's a special kind of sassiness that everyone has, including every passenger and every hostage on the train. And when you saw them listed at the end, co-ed number one, co-ed number two, the homosexual, <laughs> the pimp and the hooker. Uh, it's the all-ethnic platoon. Robbo will take your questions or comments if you have any, and then we'll blow into this good night. Does anyone want to say anything? Here we go. Yeah, There's someone in the back. Thank God you're still alive. It's been a very long hostage crisis here tonight. As we've been held through every real change. What's your name, sir?
1: Uh,
0: Ted. Ted. Yes. I'm going to call you Mr. Violet, if I may. <laughs> go on, Mr. Violet. Uh,
1: Second thing is, I went to elementary school...
0: So this and, is a compound question.
1: The second part isn't a question, but it might be of interest. Um, I went to elementary school with a kid named Rich Heck, whose father uh, did a good portion of the stunt driving in this movie. Um, you know, remember in the 70s, evil Knievel, obviously, and all the stunt thrill shows, the Thunderbirds, the Blue Angels, all this stuff. Well... The main, the two main stunt drivers had a thing called Joey Chitwood's Frill Show. Joey was uh, spelled in the female version of Joey, but he was very much a man. J O I E. If you check the credits, uh, Joey Chitwood and his brother, and then my elementary school friend's name, were, uh, father's name was Tim Heck, and they did all the uh, stunt driving on the West Side of Highway.
0: Um, were they New York based, or did you go to school on the East Coast? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania yeah. so they were because this movie is so unbelievably New York not a second of it has any Hollywood about it at all um, that's awesome and he was in a stunt driving team you say Joey Chitwood's thrill show they Joey J-O-I-A Joe J-O-I-E like my cousin Joey who changed her name for Mary Joe. <laughs> yeah and they do things
1: like carnivals and fairs oh sure
0: yeah go up on two wheels whatnot. exactly yeah oh fuck yeah that's awesome what was the first question <laughs> Because the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, my understanding is it's this, and I think there's a Hong Kong film too that has Mr. Black and Mr. White and all that. This is definitely the progenitor of Mr. Mr. Black and, and Lawrence Tierney and the whole Reservoir Dogs thing. I think it's the first great caper film where they use the uh, the colors as names, and they stick with it till the bloody, bitter, bloody, and uh, and as I said. Were you not rooting for Martin Balsam to get away with it at the end? Even though he took all the money, when he kicks the, the wad of money under the, under the bed, you think, oh, fuck, yeah, we're going to get away with it, man. We're going to get the money. And then you're like, oh, God, he lives in this horrible house with a weird bottle of whiskey over his thing and canned foods on his refrigerator. What's he going to do with all the money? Yeah. Like, where's he going to go, Atlantic City? Um, that's so awesome about your friend from grade school. Anyone else? And then we'll blow. Oh, oh we have a couple more. Look at this.
1: Hi, agree It's Lewis.
0: Hi, Lois, um, and thank you for the book. Oh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Lewis gave me a copy of The Devil in Love, and it was exactly the copy that, my wife, uh, that I lost from my wife years before in a hotel room. This means nothing to you people, but years before, I had a copy of The Devil in Love by Gazat and he found me another copy. And Let me just extend my gratitude to you. My pleasure. I take time out during my podcast that I broadcast to people in Uganda to personally interact with the people in the audience here it's, it's, it's not just all show business and me being unbelievably vibrant there's moments of real yes Lewis? I'm afraid we don't have time for your question now Lewis. go on Lewis your
1: comment about movie music from the 70s and thrillers this had very little uh, twangy guitar, if you notice. Maybe one scene in the command center, but most yeah. of it was balls to the wall music. Yeah. And David Shire, before this, he had done the conversation, which was completely different. Isn't it? Yeah.
0: Robo was raving about David Shire before the show. David Shire uh, did a tremendous job on the score here. This one's all what is it? Trombone and French horn. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. All percussion. A boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. It's just great.
0: It really is. I'm partial to Dave Grusin's score to the Three Days of the Condor, too, which is a movie I would show if given half a second uh, and and watch over and over again, if only for Max von Sydow's performance in that movie. But, uh, uh, yeah, this one's pretty terse. There's not a lot of music in it at all, uh, really, at any point. Uh, And there's fantastic 70s racial jokes, uh, which don't play anymore, and and that makes it even better, really. Uh, One more, and then we'll go. Someone else? Or no? Oh, Yes. Yes, sir.
1: Yeah, no, just a, a comment. I, I noticed that uh, the mayor's wife was Doris Roberts. Yes. From uh, Everybody Loves Righteous. Yes, Red. the mayor's wife is Doris Roberts. Just, uh, trying to to well, including Hector, I guess.
0: It's, it's every New York stage actor from, yeah. from, from, from the early 70s in New York yeah. who later went on to have awesome careers in Hollywood. Evidently, after this movie wrapped, everyone got on a plane and came <laughs> to Los Angeles and then was in a sitcom or a drama show for the rest of their lives here. Uh, it is that movie. Wow, how many mics do you have, Rob? Oh, I love it. <laughs> Look at him run. Look at him skew. Hey, um,
1: I'm Rob.
0: Hi, Rob. I live across the street. Um, you so live where? Across the street. Oh, okay. Um, so, anyway, um... In the, the way bank way. across the street?
1: <laughs>
0: all right. You don't live in Golden State The hamburger place across the street No, no. You don't live in Damiana's Pizza, do you? No Because no. when I first moved here There was a vampire who worked there Which I thought Because Damiano's is open Until 5 in the morning for delivery And I would order sometimes At 4.30 in the morning And then you think You really shouldn't order from a place Where there's a known vampire <laughs> You don't know what you're going to get so, Just a safety tip
1: <laughs>
0: I don't have that much useful information Go on, Rob.
1: So, you mentioned about the racial stereotyping. Would you say this is one of the films that kind of virtually pioneered the racial stereotyping in, in 70s films? Oh,
0: certainly not. <laughs> uh, oh, no, my goodness, no. Uh, if you've ever seen any of the exploitation movies, I think they, really, the pale uh, has been beyond, is reached. Uh, it, it's just in keeping with all of them. Again, I understand that white men in the 70s were having to deal with things like black people and uh, women in the workplace and stuff like that. And so it was a constantly hilarious joke that never got old. Um, the black cop going, I'm not that easy to see in the dark and shit. That was a fucking thigh slapper in 1974. It's not quite as funny now. Unless you're going to watch Scary Movie 8 or one of those weird, you know, parody movies. The, where The jokes are on that level. But, um, uh, no, I, I, I just think this one included it, and in a more right-on way than I even uh, ha- had to remember, because uh, uh, the, the, the the police um, detective who's in, or the the what is he inspector who's in charge of the whole uh, uh, chasing the subway train down is a black guy with a cigar, uh, which is as we know later evolved into a pone in the first Alien movie. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: Uh, No, I think it just plays along all those stereotypes. Those stereotypes are still being played out. You might have also noticed something else in the early 70s that died out by now, which is everyone's wearing a hat. Um, We think of that as 40s and 50s movies Because JFK is the one who's responsible Supposedly for the hat being over Because JFK didn't wear a hat He's the last president he wore a top hat at his inaugural But he didn't wear a hat day to day Like Ike wore a hat and shit like that All presidents wore hats When JFK quit wearing them that was the end of hats in the United States And yet as you see 15 years later uh, Everyone in New York City When they change out of their disguises at the end Robert Shaw goes new hats (laughs) (laughs) And takes off his little tie roll and puts on a kicky Greek fisherman <laughs> Kiki Greek fisherman to get killed in at the end when he does his weird sadomasochistic third rail thing. So uh, uh, I-, I think the groove of that came back, obviously. Now, if you walk down the street here at Fairfax in the daytime, you will see people unironically dressed as the cast of the kidnappers <laughs> and hijackers from Pelham One, Two, Three walking down the street wearing little fucking tie rolls and Greek fisherman hats with plaid pants on and shit like that with no remorse. And the same 70s glasses and weird porn stashes um, are worn again uh, with no irony. And yet in those days, you had to be either Steve Prefontaine or Harry Reams to wear a mustache like that. In my opinion. Or Andrea Dworkin. Yeah, that was just fucking cheaper than fuck. I guess it's late. Uh, is that it then? If it, if it is, well, anyone else? Because if we don't. Uh, who had, in the train station I don't know if it was uh, No, uh, the, the, in, the, in, the, in the Train Command Center, yeah. who's by the way If you noticed, was using a 1920s Elliot Ness phone To talk to the command center on She actually had a 1920s Hey Rico fucking mouth set On the fucking phone in the 70s uh, Yeah, uh, no it wasn't On us, it was, it was Esther. I can't remember that actress's name like Luanda Luanda Page I believe it was LaWanda Page it was not Luanda Page Thank you Robbo Robbo uh, uh, scoured the credits before the showing of this movie and went through everything and uh, I'm assured that it's not LaWanda Page however that woman was in a LaWanda Page look-alike contest not two years later <laughs> and receive third place money. That's my understanding. This has been the Greg Proops Film Club. You have been the most awesome audience in the world. This is gonna take me a kind of one, two, three. And we'll be back in a month's time for Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino by Sidney LeMondon. Good night, everybody. May every page that you turn be a such a page. I love you, good night.